This week's episode of the Getting to Know podcast is brought to you by Latinx Heritage Month. Today, we honor and celebrate our Latinx employees. Employees can join our virtual celebration on Connect. Hey, everybody. It's Mike Rickheim. Thanks for joining us today for another edition of the Getting to Know podcast. Today, we've got a bit of a twist for you because I'm joined by one of our very talented production artist, Mr. Eric Hernandez, who's joining me from the Design Center here in Alpharetta, Georgia, in the global headquarters for Nina. Eric, thanks for taking some time and spending it with us today on the Getting to Know podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. So I mentioned a bit of a twist versus the regular podcast. So we'll get into all that regular content as well. But I think there's a cool opportunity with Hispanic Heritage Month upon us to talk a little bit about that. We've done a little bit of a deep dive into diversity and equity and inclusion with Black History Month, had some cool discussions with with Laron Wilder and a couple other folks. But we haven't really dug into it a ton on the Getting to Know podcast. So I'd love to spend some time with you talking about that and and getting your perspective on that. And then we'll get into some of the other stuff as well, if that's good with you. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's start here. How long have you been with your organization, Eric? I've been with Nina going on two years now. I started a few months before the pandemic hit. So very interesting onboarding for you, as with you know a lot of our employees starting around that time frame. So what's the experience been for someone with your background, your heritage, and and I'm kind of talking around it. Should I call you Hispanic? Are you Latino? Is it Latinx? Like, what what do you prefer to be called? What is the right thing for me to be asking here? <laughs> well, I would say that I'm American first. You know, I don't really have a preference. I'm both Hispanic and Latino. I'm Cuban and Puerto Rican. So Hispanic is a term created by the Nixon administration for the purposes of the Census Bureau in order to classify all peoples of Spanish-speaking origin. Um, And I think Latino refers specifically to a geographical location. So I think most people would prefer to be called Latino just because it speaks more to their experience rather than a classification in order to monetize or market toward them, if that makes sense. That makes sense. So increasingly we see this latin x term out there what is that help the help the listening audience understand the the background there i think the purposes of that is to not be gender specific to not generalize and say that like because you know in spanish all things have a gender like you know, a baseball would have a gender in Spanish-speaking language. <laughs> right. So, that, and that's the whole la, el, or las, los, right? Exactly. Okay. Gotcha. So that makes sense. So so not being gender-specific then. So your background is, you said, American first, born in the U.S.? Yes. Born in the U.S., Cuban and Puerto Rican heritage? Yes. And is that like 50-50? Pretty much. My dad is a Cuban refugee and my mother's family comes from Puerto Rico. My mother was born in Brooklyn. Gotcha. Where were you born and raised? I was actually born in New Jersey and I was raised in Newark, Hoboken area. I went to school in Hoboken. And then when I was about 10 years old, my family moved down to Florida to the Panhandle. How different was the experience as a Latino American living in 
New Jersey, kind of New York, New Jersey, tri-state area versus the panhandle in Florida versus what you experience now in the greater Atlanta area? Well, it was like night and day. I lived in like, you know, what would be considered a Spanish ghetto in New Jersey, you know, primarily Spanish speaking. I grew up Spanish was my first language. I didn't speak a whole lot of English. I learned it in school. But when we moved down to Florida, I was the first minority in my elementary school. So as you can imagine, Spanish wasn't really spoken where I lived. We were in a very rural area. We had like seven acres of land, you know, so going from a Spanish ghetto to like deep woods, Southern Alabama, it was like total culture shock. And so it was a bit traumatizing as a child, but I learned to adapt. I learned to, you know, find ways to get along with people that, might not necessarily get along with me traditionally. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And for those of you in the listening audience, uh, if, if you're, if you spend any time in this Atlanta area, you probably know the panhandle. Well, if you haven't, you, you may not know, but the panhandle certainly then, and probably now still demographically very different than Miami or South Florida or a, a larger kind of city, right? Very different. I think had we kept on going further south, things would have been a lot different for us growing up, but we stopped too short. And um, it's not the Florida with that most people might recognize, you know, like Orlando, that kind of thing. You know, it's a lot more diverse, primarily Hispanic population. But, you know, that's one of the reasons why moving up to this area was such a great thing for me and my family like it was important for me to make sure that my kids had a different experience growing up and i wanted to make sure that they felt that they were in a diverse area and this is probably the most diverse area in georgia especially atlanta being like such a huge city the difference between this and the panhandle again is night and day i feel a lot more included here. I feel like my kids are going to be able to grow up alongside people of many different cultures and they're going to have a better experience and get to know people of different cultures and become more accepting individuals themselves. Absolutely. Atlanta, one of its its many advantages is uh, it is absolutely a a melting pot, the greater Atlanta area. And you still have, you know, suburban Atlanta is, I think data would indicate, still going to slant toward a far whiter type of area than than other, you know, parts of the city. But overall, like huge, huge diversity in all dimensions of diversity, whether it's gender, race, ethnicity, lifestyle, orientation, that kind of thing. So how long have you been in the Atlanta area? So I moved here from Athens, Georgia. How was the experience in Athens? Well, it's funny, when I moved up here, it felt like Athens was pretty diverse. But after living there, I realized that it's really not as diverse as one might think. There's a large population of college attending students. And, you know, I think that lends itself to a more segregated population as far as like class structure is concerned. A lot of the minorities there are not affluent. You know, it's definitely more of a like a white college town, you might say. And so working there, I found that I wasn't feeling as included as I hoped. And so when I started getting to know the Atlanta area better, I found that 
I've felt more accepted out here. I felt more at home out here. Uh, there was a, a lot more diversity as far as like the kinds of people I saw in areas of management, areas of authority. And that made me feel a lot more comfortable. And so that was the experience I wanted for my children growing up. And I felt like it was important to make the migration out here in order to enrich their lives, but also to enrich my own. Did you find that your experience from a work standpoint or even your kids' experience uh, was different in a college town while classes were in or just because the population was different or what did, did that not did that not change? Yeah, the, the lifestyle in Athens is very different from here. Like working in Athens, I found that in order to be able to make ends meet or, you know, to to reach my goals, I had to not just work a full-time job, but also like find gig work here and there. And Athens economy largely relies on gig work because it is a college town. So like, for example, I worked at a sign shop as a graphic designer during the day. And then at night I would uh, work at say like the dollar theater in order to make extra money, or I would work the door at the 40 watt or, you know, I also was in a band. So like on the weekends, my band would go and play shows around Athens. And we would also come out to Atlanta to play shows. And we would make a little bit of money that way. But that's really how things work there. So while school is in session, you have the opportunity to make money on the side. I was also a bartender from um, Hotel Indigo. My wife was the event director there. And so Sometimes I would drive from, say, when I worked in Covington, I would drive all the way into Athens from Covington, not even go home, just go straight to the hotel, put on my bartender uniform and get behind the bar and serve drinks. And that's kind of the way it works there. You, you make your money while you can because school is in session and there's a large population of students. But then during the summer, it's a ghost town. So during the summer, it's kind of feast or famine. Gig work is something that is not new for creative types, right? I mean, it's it's not uncommon to go freelance and do your graphic stuff or, you know, that kind of thing on the side where you have opportunities. Um, you just happen to extend it to work in the door or, or doing some bartending. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, while I was doing that, one of my other side hustles was freelance design. So, it could be said that I probably had four jobs, maybe five jobs at at some point, just in order to like, you know, further us and the family. And that's one main difference living here is that because I feel like the economy's better out here, you're more appreciated as an employee, uh, especially here at Nina, I'm able to like concentrate on my family more. I'm able to spend more time with my kids because I'm not having to hustle so much. I think Athens, especially Clark County, is a very impoverished area. And especially for minorities, it seems like, you know, if you don't work for the college, you're just not going to make any money. But here, that's not the case. So a huge part of celebrating any kind of heritage, and in this case, Hispanic Heritage Month, is helping to educate our employees. So you mentioned it's been a good experience here at Nina, and I know it's been you know kind of a weird thing with the with the pandemic. So you probably haven't had a chance to get in here as much and rub elbows and get to know people the way you might want to. But how have you experienced Nina in your time here so far? 
to be honest, this is probably the most inclusive and as far as those types of matters are concerned, you know, when, when you think about like diversity, as far as like, whether it be race, whether it be uh, sexual orientation, whether it be lifestyle, Nina is very conscious of all that more so than I've ever experienced in the past. That's one thing that I really love about working here is that I get to work with such a diverse team. And for the first time that I can think of, I'm, I'm not looked at as the Hispanic guy. I'm looked at as an actual valuable team member. I'm recognized for my work and not for my skin color. For me, especially with my experience growing up in, in the South, is pretty important and it's pretty valuable. Yeah, I think so much about what we're looking at from a diversity, equity, and inclusion platform standpoint. It's it's about enabling everyone to just kind of bring their their whole selves and kind of head, heart, and hands and maximize kind of their impact and their experience. So that's that's great to hear. And there's a lot of opportunity for us for sure. But 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 I'm I'm, I'm glad to hear that's how you're experiencing it. Uh, that's certainly a nice platform or foundation from which to build. So we're launching employee resource groups by race and ethnicity and gender and a variety of dimensions of, of, of diversity. What excites you most? And then I guess on the flip side, what, what would be your cautions for us as we do that? The whole idea is very exciting because, you know, I feel like our climate now, you know, as a world is one where we are paying more attention to the human experience and how different that could be for everyone. You know, like even within those groups, you have a very varied experience within individuals, you know, like nobody's just one thing to say that like this person is Hispanic, this person is black, or this person is, you know, gender neutral. Like we're all multifaceted. We're all many dimensions of all those things. In fact, to be a Latino means to be a lot of different things. You know, there's a, a rich cultural history in being a Latino that involves being African-American as well. You know, me being Cuban, that means that not only am I from, you know, my, my family's from Cuba, but their family is from Spain, from Africa, from China, from many different things, native Taino. Like, it's so enriched. And really, that is the human experience. It's so varied and different. And it's great to celebrate Hispanic heritage. But when you really think about it, Hispanic heritage doesn't belong to one group. It really is American heritage. Because as Americans, we are many things. And it's part of our history as an American to say that Hispanic history, Black history, whatever kind of history, it's all part of our culture as an Americans. That's a great perspective. You know, I find there to be somewhat of a tension on the topic of everything, diversity, equity, and inclusion in that there's so much need in, in, you know, across the globe, so much need to kind of recognize the differences and experiences uh, and perspectives that, you know, different groups of people bring. So recognize that and celebrate that while also to your point, recognizing that literally everybody is going to be a little different. So you're, you're not just, as you said, 
the Latino guy or the Hispanic guy, or it's not, you know, you're not just working with the black woman or something like that. Right. Cause that's not who they are. It's a huge part of who they are, but it doesn't define them fully. So you find this like, or I find this tension around this kind of overbroad and vague, like this is what that culture means yet. Yet I don't, you know, I shouldn't just automatically ascribe something to you because you're Cuban and Puerto Rican, right? So how do you rectify that or reconcile that in your mind? And what would your counsel be to the getting to know podcast listening audience as as we, you know, continue to educate people on different experiences and different cultures and different heritages? How, how do you reconcile that? Well, I think a lot of times some of these things are really up to the individual and how they feel. And so to say that like there's a way to approach such this kind of subject with just one one way of looking at it is to say that everyone could be treated the same way and not as an individual. And so I think there's a fine line when it comes to Hispanic heritage, for example, like to say that, you know, there's a month where we celebrate Hispanic heritage in itself is kind of like saying if you really look at it it's kind of like saying that hispanic heritage is different from other heritage and should be looked at as a different thing instead of saying that it's all just heritage it's all just the american story and while it seems like that is kind of a bad thing it doesn't have to be Right. So like it's good to recognize that subtle nuance in the American experience and say, like, there's a large percentage of Hispanics who have this history. We're not going to say that it should be limited to one month, but we're going to honor that for one month. So I think it really depends on the perspective of the person who is recognizing it, for example. I think sometimes people forget what the intention is and concentrate more on how they feel about it. And so the responsibility falls on all of us to assume positive intent when it comes to these kind of matters, especially because I might feel a certain way towards other people because of my experience or because of the way I've been treated. But I need to remember that other people may not want to treat me that way or other people may not feel that way about me. So I need to assume positive intent in all my interactions with other people of all races, of all colors, of all sexual orientations, just all humans as a whole, because I want the same for myself. I want when I approach somebody for them to assume positive intent. Yeah. I think what you said in the beginning is very powerful. Like you're, you're in this case, an American first, and we could probably even back it up. You know, you're somebody's son and you're somebody's partner and you're somebody's dad. And these are all just very different elements of our experience that we, we bring to the table. Your commentary about it just being heritage, I think is very powerful. I've kind of stumbled into this experience. I've got a really good friend on the West Coast who's uh, both his parents came from Mexico. He grew up kind of in, in like that uh, Bakersfield area. I have a really good friend whose parents came over from Cuba. He's down in South Florida. What I have found, and again, this is just my own limited experience with two people that I care for deeply. The only real commonalities associated with their experiences is a, 
you know, the parents' native tongue. You know, the, the, the Mexican experience is not necessarily the same as the Cuban experience. So I'm curious, are there different traditions that you experience with one parent, you know, primarily of Puerto Rican descent, one with Cuban descent? And does that, how, how does that flow into who you are? It's surprising that it's vastly different, but also very much the same. Like Cuba and Puerto Rico geographically are very close to each other. And so from that perspective, my parents are very similar in the way they speak, you know, because there's different dialects when it comes to Spanish. Most people know that by now, but like, you know, there are differences in some of the words they use, but overall it's very similar. The kinds of food that they would prepare, very similar. But then my family on the Puerto Rican side is very different from my family on the Cuban side. And growing up, a lot of times I would draw inspiration from my dad being a political refugee. He grew up in a very, I mean, it's a, it's a crazy story, but it's a very rich story. And his grandfather was very wealthy. Castro had a revolution and my father and his grandfather and his family all fled Cuba in order to escape being executed. And they went to New York and they grew up there very poor. My grandfather had lost everything and, you know, went from a position where he owned hospitals and hotels and he owned basically a whole town and he was revered to Spanish ghetto, New York, scrubbing toilets for little to no money. My dad was 14 and having to work in order to support the family. And with that came a value system that I inherited. And my mother's experience is very different. You know, my, my grandfather was a, a member of the Puerto Rican Independence Party. And there's a lot of uh, political history between America and Puerto Rico that is very crazy. And so they went to New York mainly because they were displaced, but also because they were looking for more opportunities. And so my mother grew up with a very different experience. And as such, she had more of, how do you say, more of a laid back approach to things. But both of them had a lot of wisdom to give me when it came to the ways that I could expect to be treated growing up. And that was definitely put to the test when we moved to Florida. And I had to grow up among like, you know, especially during middle school where, you know, we are at our worst and the people we're in school with are at their worst. <laughs> so I had to learn how to accept other people's views and look past the ignorance and know that the things that my parents taught me were going to get me through and that I could find my way in the world as long as I remembered that I had to work harder than everybody else in order to get the same things because it was my lot in life. Growing up, my parents would tell me, you have two strikes against you when you were born. And you have to remember that going through life. And then on my 18th birthday, my dad told me, uh, you have to remember that at 18, you could be tried as an adult. So be careful with the things you do because they're looking at you and you're being singled out. And so it's easy to take those things growing up and turn them outward and weaponize them and look at the world with bitter lens. But I had to remember that, again, I have to assume positive intent because 
I want the world to be positive and I want other people to assume positive intent with me. Whether or not they have preconceived notions, I want them to give me the benefit of the doubt, forget what they were taught growing up and assume that I'm a good person and that that should be enough, whether it be that I'm Hispanic or whatever. As long as I'm a good person, that's all that matters. And then maybe in that I can teach them that, you know, you don't need to look at people that way. It's very, very powerful perspective. And it, uh, I think, you know, perhaps this wasn't your intent. Maybe, maybe you wanted to make this point, but, but what you just described uh, is, I, I think, such a clear real life overview of the privilege that some of us are born into that we really don't even don't even re- recognize, right? Um, that that whole two strikes comment is, um, you know, it's uh, it's interesting as as well as the warning around, you know, hey, you're you're 18 now, watch yourself even 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 more closely. Something that many of us don't even, you know, we don't even think about it that way. Um, so I'm curious, what's the guidance or counsel along those lines that you've provided to your kids one generation later? So uh, I have five kids, <laughs> which is a lot. Four of them are stepchildren. And so for me, I wanted to make sure that whenever they saw other minorities in the world, and this is one of the big reasons I moved from Athens to Atlanta, that they weren't just seeing minorities as like, you know, a certain social class. And in Athens, it really is that like, all of my Hispanic friends work back of the house in the kitchen. You know, they don't work front of the house. They're not the host. They're not the manager. They're not, you know, even at the hotel, for example, all of my black and Hispanic friends were all housekeeping. You know, I was one of the only ones that was, you know, working behind the bar, seeing customers. And I don't want to say that that was intentional on anyone's part. I think it's more uh, a systematic symptom of the economic climate in Athens, Clark County. But coming out here, you know, and especially in the schools, like whenever they were going to school, it was always the black and Hispanic kids that were getting in trouble, that were being arrested at school. Um, And so it was important for me to make sure that when they grew up, they were seeing people of color, minorities, that were in charge, that were in positions of authority, that were the manager, the owner. And when me and my wife came out here and we saw that, we felt like this is going to help them grow up with the understanding that all people are equal. And even people who traditionally may be excluded from the the society as a whole deserve to be treated as equals and in this area they get to see that the you know their teachers their the people of authority the police officers everybody is a minority out here and that way they don't look at people of color as oh that person works in the back of the house you know they can look at them be like the owner of that fine establishment is a hispanic man yeah. One of the most consistent things that I've heard through the years on this topic, and it's, you know, it's, it's women, it's, it's, you know, people of color, people look around to see if there are people that remind them 
of anything about themselves. And, you know, if, if, if I'm a woman in the workplace, I'm looking around to see, are there women that are, you know, further up in the organization? Do I have that chance? And I would, would think that based on what I've heard that applies to races and ethnicities and orientations and age and everything, it's who I, who I am. Do I see that I can, I can continue to grow do I fit here? Am I standing out in a way that might not enable me to be able to do the things I want? So that's 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 very good perspective. I, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, I think it's absolutely important because it normalizes it. You know, like for example, here at Nina, our leader is a female, and that makes me so happy. I think it's great that I get to work at a company where the decisions are being made by a broad diverse group of people instead of many companies that I've worked in the past where it's an old white guy that's in charge of everything. You know, I've worked for a bunch of old white guys. I'm, I am an old white guy. Um, <laughs> so nothing against old white guys, but I'm with you. I love the perspective. And I, I will tell you one of the things I'm, I'm most excited about in, as, as we look ahead and we've, we've put a lot of work into this, but if you look at our P&L owners across the globe, the, the general manager community, starting with Julie, but the presidents and the general managers, not just from a gender standpoint, not just from a race, ethnicity standpoint, but from a country of origin standpoint, we've got so many really cool and unique perspectives there that I, you know, I think that's going to serve us well. And we're just going to make sure we maximize that and, and, and continue to emphasize the need to surround ourselves with different perspectives and complementary skills and capabilities. So that's a, it's, it's a, also a very good perspective. If there's one thing related to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to air quote it, which is bad since this is an audio, uh, media, but I'm going to air quote it. Um, Hispanic Heritage Month. And I'm air quoting it because you've said, hey, there's a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up in there. So I want to acknowledge that. But if there's one thing related to that celebration that you could impart upon our employee population, um, you know, from an education standpoint, from an understanding standpoint, what, what would that be? I think mainly that variety is the spice of life, right? It's like, because we have this rich culture, you know, we get to celebrate that. And to say that, like, we're going to take this month and say that this month we're going to celebrate Hispanics. I think maybe a better perspective would be like, we get to celebrate the Hispanic heritage about our culture as Americans. And it doesn't just belong to me. It doesn't just belong to other Hispanics. It belongs to everybody. Like I was saying before, you know, whenever, whenever you, throw something out that's really broad, um, you know, it's a, it, it becomes almost by definition, I guess, stereotypical. So you're also, I assume, just based on your role as a production artist, you're probably a pretty creative guy. Now, I'm sure there are production artists who are not as creative as others, but I mean, is that a fair assumption for me to make based on what you've chosen to make as your primary vocation? Yeah, I'm pretty creative. At least I try to be as creative as possible. I've always been like a creative person. I've always been artistic. You know, growing up, I always wanted to be an artist. That was always my dream. And so I've always been what you would call a creative, you know, in some aspect, whether it be creating music, creating artwork, creating design, um, creating stories. You know, I've I've even tried to do some film work. So, like, for me, like, 
that's always been a passion is to create. I'm just curious. I have my oldest child is a creative and does is starting to do some stuff in college around uh, around graphics. And um, you can clearly see she did a summer internship, all the stuff that is uh, about visual identity and how you present things very different than, say, her, you know, analytical capabilities that I believe in the genetics world, they refer to as the Apple syndrome and the lack of analytical capabilities. But I see these things from her and the way that she expresses herself. It's it's in everything she does. So do you do you hang out in the kitchen? And when you do, does it look really cool? Like, is that is that how you like, do you express yourself in all those different ways? Not just at work, not just through your music, not just when you're you know working on some kind of art? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's almost like a mental condition. I can't do anything and like, unless I customize it, my family, they joke about it because, you know, we do things like we'll have like a pumpkin carving contest. And of course I spend longer than anybody else. I've got more elaborate design into it and I always win <laughs> gingerbread competition. Same thing. We make like every year we do a gingerbread house and the whole family sits at the table and we're all carving away at graham crackers and building stuff. And it's four in the morning. I'm still working on mine. And when I'm done, it's like a mansion instead of a gingerbread house and, and all the things I do. It's always elaborate. It's always involved. I'm hyper-focused. It's something I can't stop myself from doing. <laughs> so we have this creative American, the son of a Cuban refugee and a Puerto Rican woman doing all this stuff around production art here at Nina now. You've done a bunch of side gigs. You express yourself in a bunch of different ways. If money was not an issue, you got paid the same no matter what. What would you be doing? I really love what I do now, honestly. Like, if money weren't an issue and I could, like, buy myself, like, the most expensive giant machines that would produce even bigger results, I would continue doing what I'm doing now. Uh, I'd love to create things. Um, you know, I tell my friends when they ask me, what do you do for a living? I say, well, I get to create basically origami for a living. I get to create awesome packaging. You know, I've always been drawn to packaging as far as like when I go shopping. And I've always told people that you can basically put anything in a pretty box and sell it. It's the package that sells. It's great. It's a uh, very special place when kind of your passion and your vocation come together. So you've moved around a lot, been kind of tri-state, New York, New Jersey area, then in the Panhandle to Athens here in Atlanta. Is there a specific type of food that you crave having grown up the way you've grown up, where you grew up? that you find you can or can't get in certain places? Cause I gotta believe like, you know, the cuisine in Atlanta, at least those options are probably very different than say Athens. Oh, we have the best food out here. We really do. Atlanta's food is incredible. And it's, it's a challenge every day to risk the temptation of trying new stuff. Cause I will gain weight like crazy if I, if I was let loose. Every day coming to work, I pass another restaurant that I want to try and I'm like curious about. There's like a running list. There's hundreds of them. So are you officially a foodie? Yeah, I would say I'm a foodie. I adore all kinds of different foods. If I have never tried it, uh, I'm so excited to try it. 
just moving out here, I've tried so many different things. And before then, I was probably the most adventurous person you're going to meet. And so to see that there's still like a whole bunch of stuff I haven't tried is super exciting to me. What's your favorite restaurant that you've been to since you've been in the greater Atlanta area? Oh, that's tough. Uh, I have a new favorite every week. <laughs> oh, yeah. What, what part of town are you in now? I live in Lilburn now. I moved from Lawrenceville to Lilburn last week, actually. Do the five kids have adventurous palates like, like the old man? They're pretty adventurous. Uh, the little ones are the challenge, but as long as it's colorful and it has candy on it, they're willing to try it. Uh, if it's fried, definitely. You know, they're growing up. They're they're definitely into the junk food and anything green. They reject, but we figure that if we keep putting it in front of them, eventually they're going to cave and they're going to say, you know what, kale is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that just confirms further that I am. I had the palate of a child because I like all the things that your younger kids do uh, and reject what, what they reject. So so along those same lines, Eric, at the end of every Getting to Know podcast, we ask our guests three specific questions. And the first one, you probably know this as a Getting to Know podcast enthusiast, is what is always in your fridge? So keeping with kind of that cuisine theme, what would always be found in the Hernandez family refrigerator? Well, my family is really big about coffee. In fact, that's one of my passions is coffee. I have lots of passions. But Is there a Cuban coffee element here or, or am I going too direct to your heritage? No, actually, I grew up loving Cuban coffee. In fact, when I was in the crib, my parents would dip my pacifier into Cuban coffee. They said it calmed me down, if you can believe that. I don't know how that works, but I like it. And my dad, before he went to bed every night, would drink a cup of Cuban coffee because he couldn't sleep otherwise. I think maybe he was addicted to caffeine. Is uh, a cafecito, is that just a Cuban coffee or is that a specific type of Cuban coffee? Cafecito means little coffee. So, but yeah, I think because Cuban coffee is so thick and syrupy that they, they serve it in little cups. I've, I've seen some friends and colleagues get completely jacked up on some cafecito. Uh, so, you know, perhaps they don't have the normal caffeine intake. Or certainly, they didn't have their pacifier perhaps dipped in it as a, as a child. But, yeah, I've seen them get pretty jacked up. So, very passionate about coffee, all kinds of different uh, brews. You grind your own coffee. You Yeah, in fact, one of my dreams is to uh, roast my own coffee. I hope one day to buy a, a roaster and source beans from Latin America and, and roast them at home. And that way I don't have to spend so much money on coffee. Um, but it's not a cheap date. No, my favorite way of roasting coffee is through my Chemex. It comes out really clean, no silt in it, full of flavor. It's the best way to get the flavor out of the, the, the grind. And I also grind it super, super fine, like a powder. I should be far more careful, particularly on a podcast such as this one, about making all of these just assumptions. But I'm going to make an assumption based on what you just said that you're not putting any like flavors in there or anything like that, right? Like you just drinking this stuff hardcore? Yeah, I drink it black, but I also like half and half in it because just because it tastes good. Some coffee purists are against that. But, you know, if it's a good cup of coffee, 
I'll drink it black, you know, if it's a really nice blend. But sometimes it's enjoyable just to have it with some cream and, you know, a piece of buttered bread dipped in it. You know, that, that's Cuban. That's a Cuban tradition. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Another thing we always have is super hot sauce. Like, it's not really a family tradition. My family can't even stand pepper. But me, I love anything super spicy. My wife... All of our kids, even the four-year-old, love spicy stuff. And and not not just you know Mexican, Cuban, like including like Indian or kind of any kind of Asian kind of spice, just spice. Absolutely, we go to the Indian restaurant and you know they'll say, "How spicy do you want it?" And we're like, "Do you have anything higher than 10? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, second question for you, Eric. Amongst those who know you well, what would you say you're most famous for? Hmm. Depends on who you ask. <laughs> I guess in terms of Nina, uh, hopefully I'm famous for some of the work I've been doing. Uh, I hope it speaks for itself. You know, I'm hoping that my passion translates through the things that I do here at work because I really enjoy it. I really love it. I love that I'm being given the freedom to experiment and create these wonderful things. And I'm proud of things that I produce. And so I hope everyone else sees it and thinks, wow, this is somebody who cares. That's great. Good perspective. All right, my friend. So last question for you. What would you say you are most looking forward to right this very moment? I would love for things to return to normal. If you ask me a a couple of weeks ago, I would have said I'm most looking forward to when things go back to normal in September and we get to join as a company and travel and all those things. But as it stands, I'm looking forward to when we finally get through all this and we get to, you know, congregate in person and have that human connection again. 100% completely agree uh, for a plethora of reasons that, that you've touched on and, and, and a bunch of others. It's been, it's been a grueling ride through this, uh, not just for us. Obviously, everyone you know, around the world is, is, is struggling, but I um, absolutely look forward to that same thing. But I have to say we've all done a really great job navigating this. And like, while we haven't really had the opportunity to have that in-person human connection, me being part of Nina has helped me get through this. And I can see where my wife, for example, the only human connection she has are five kids. And that's not really enough. Again, diversity is the spice of life. And having more people to talk to, whether it be through Zoom or email, like it's helped me get through all this. And it's helped me stay sane. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad that you know your experience, uh, which has been limited to a COVID Nina for the most part, right? I'm glad glad to hear that that's been a, a positive for you and has helped you you kind of pull through. Certainly appreciate your time today, Eric. I've enjoyed getting to know you some, and 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 absolutely, and I I, I feel comfortable speaking for the getting to know podcast audience. Appreciate your perspective on. And everything that we we got into from a broader heritage standpoint to, you know, specifically around uh, perspective around Hispanic Heritage Month. Like I said, appreciate your time and very much look forward to working with you as we we roll out these employee resource groups and, you know, continue to enhance the experience associated with working here at Nina. 
Well, thank you, Mike. It's been an honor and, you know, getting to be invited to come and talk to you instead of just listening to your episodes is uh, really awesome. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it as well. So thanks again for your time. For those of you in the listening audience, hope you enjoyed Eric's perspective. Thanks again for your time and we'll talk to you again in two more weeks.